0: Okay, so today we're continuing in our series of insights from the Gospels. And if you would, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Today we're going to look at the temptations of Jesus. And I'm going to give you a little bit different uh, analysis of this than than I've ever done before and that I've ever heard, although I'm sure it's been done many times. And that is to look at these temptations in the context of the actual Scriptures that Jesus uses to answer them. So the first, the, the, temptations, the temptation of Christ is mentioned in three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Mark, it's just mentioned briefly. In chapter 1 of Mark, verse 12, it says, "...immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness." And he was there in the wilderness 40 days tempted by Satan and was with the wild beasts and the angels ministered to him. And that's all you get of the temptation of Jesus in Mark. It is interesting though that this uh, word drove is the same word that's used when Jesus talks about if uh, you have a speck in your eye or you see a brother with a speck in their eye, pluck the log out of your own eye. First, it's the same word here. It's a it's a extract from one place and put in another place type of a word. So the Spirit here is insisting that you go into the wilderness. And Jesus, of course, is obedient, but it's interesting that he uses this difficult uh, word. And I think we can take from this that this wilderness experience is not an optional. Desire for, for God, that God has—it's something that He really desires. I think we'll see why in due time. Mark and Luke basically go over the same, the same uh, story or, or, or tell it the same way. I'm going to use Luke, so let's go look look at Luke four. We won't read Matthew four because it's basically the same, except for the order that they're talked about in. And I'm sure there's something significant about that. But I'm going to do the order in Luke. Satan tempts Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being tempted for forty days by the devil. And in those days he ate nothing, and afterward, when they had ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. So, several interesting things about this, of course, that Jesus is in the wilderness. Now, there's a lot of significant things about the wilderness, but what uh, immediately comes to mind when you think of wilderness and forty? <laughs> I don't think this is an accidental uh, analysis that he's, or a parallel that he's using the wilderness for 40 days as representative of the children of Israel for 40 years. So he goes to the wilderness for 40 uh, days, and when G- when Satan tempts him and says, "You're hungry, so make bread," Jesus answers with, "It is written." So let's go and look at what is written in the full context. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Now Deuteronomy, as you'll recall, is sort of the last speech of Moses before he uh, turns the reins of the uh, leadership of Israel over to Joshua and they go into the promised land. And Deuteronomy is laid out in the form of an ancient treaty where uh, it's, uh, if you'll do this, I'll do that, and so forth, and uh, there's a lot to that. But it also recounts what they've learned because this is the generation that's been wandering for 40 years. So in chapter 8, verse 1, Moses says, Every commandment... Which I command you today, you must be careful to observe. That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord God swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all these way, these 40 years in the wilderness. So who, who took the children of Israel to the wilderness? God took them there, Right? Why? Well, to humble and test you. To know what was in your heart, whether you would keep His commandments or not. So He humbled you, allowed you to hunger, fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. That He might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did your foot swell these forty years. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs. Now, why would brooks of water and fountains and springs be materially attractive to these people? Where have they been? In the the hideous desert, right? They're carrying a rock around to get their water out of. A land of wheat and barley. Of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil, honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are full, then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he's given you. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God. By not keeping his commandments, his judgments, and his statutes which I command you today. Lest when you've eaten and are full and have built beautiful houses and dwell in them. And when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold are multiplied. And all you have is multiplied. When your heart is lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. From the house of bondage. Okay? So, Jesus has been in the wilderness for 40 days and Satan says, comes and says, hey, take this rock and make bread out of it. And Jesus answers first. The first thing he says is what? It is written. And he quotes this verse from this passage. Now, anytime you see a Scripture quote, the whole context of the scriptures included, and he just quotes this part. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But look at the immediate context. He humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna. Now, what do we gain from this about hunger? It can be good. good. (laughs) Now, what's good about Has anybody ever really wanted something really bad that you didn't have? Proverbs says, a full soul loaves a honeycomb, but a hungry soul, to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. Ah, so, okay, good. Yeah, when, when you don't have anything, a little bit seems like a lot. And when you have a lot, more seems necessary, doesn't it? And I remember seeing a TV show one time, and they were interviewing this fella. I think he was a North Korean, and he was uh, exiled for some reason. Offhand, I don't remember what it was. Uh, And someone was bringing him rice to eat. He was living in an unheated um, dwelling, and he was really cold. And he ate this rice, and it had like ice crystals in it. And they interviewed him, and he said, all I want is warm food to eat. If I just had warm food, then I would be happy. Do you believe that? (laughs) But how many times have we said, you know, if I just had this one thing, then I would be happy. But this is, you don't have anything. Now, what about manna? What what is the significance of he allowed you to hunger and fed you manna? What's, What's really significant about manna? What do you think what's significant about manna? why does he mention it here what are some other ways that you could eat if you're if you're out what does what does a typical military group do when they're out in a in a place that 's not their home it's okay to bring the rations with them that, that forty year taking forty years worth is probably problematic what's some other ways that you could do it questionable things. But. Yeah, you can forage. That's pretty that's pretty typical. You forage if you Now, what's the problem with foraging here? <laughs> yeah, there's nothing to forage, right? There's no people that live there and there's Now, I think that we in the wilderness, they did go buy provisions from time to time, it seems. That that seems to be implied. But they had the manna. Now, if you have the manna and there's no place to forage and there's no Really, uh, opportunity to like plant crops and stuff. Have you been? If you've been to this place, where the, where the wilderness is, it is. It makes it makes the place where it makes West Texas look like the Garden of Eden. I mean, it is a rocky, nasty, no vegetation. I mean, we don't. They don't even have mesquite trees. Won't even grow out there. It is. It is a barren, barren place. We were uh, privileged to go on a trip to Israel, and one of the One of the things that this guy did was, our guide, he would uh, not really tell you what was coming in in the morning. He would tell you how much water to take with you. That's all you got. And so we drove up to the edge of this, it looked like a crater of the moon. And he said, take extra water with you. So we knew something was up. So we go hiking down this thing. I, I don't know if I ever stepped on a level piece of ground the whole time we were... It was just rock after rock after rock. And occasionally you'd see some little lichen or something that was growing or some little fuzzy plant or something, but it was basically just barren. And it was hot. And about an hour in, the grumbling started. So here we are. We've got high-tech tennis shoes, liters of water, uh, and we've got one hour, and people are complaining already. Now, it... it uh, and, and I felt it too. Okay? But I immediately understood what was happening. Because he had told us this is probably where the children of Israel wandered at part of their time. And I thought to myself, never again will I criticize these people for being wimps and uh, complaining. I totally get it. That was different about the manna than regular food is you can store regular food and put your trust in that store of food, but God wanted them to trust in Him and so He ruined it every night. Good point, yeah. That's so you could keep it for one day and then it turned to worms except on the Sabbath day. Yeah. And another thing about the manna is it was only in their local area. So it wasn't the, every every day you'll have some kind of manna and you have to go out and figure out where it is. The manna was always right around them. Well, so I, th- I think the, the thing that I, th- I think the reason why he's talking about manna, particularly here in the place of hunger, is that God put them in a place where he, they didn't really have any alternatives but to do things the, God, the way God wanted them to. There were really no alternatives. And this word that he uses. In verse 2, God led you all these ways in the 40 years in the wilderness to humble and test you. There's a very interesting word. The word humble is the Greek word ana, anah. A N A H. And let's just look at a couple places where anah is used. The first instance of it comes in Genesis 15. Let's look at Genesis 15. And verse 13, and this is Jesus. I mean, God talking to Abram. He, then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants, Abram, will be strangers in a land that's not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. What's he talking about? Egypt. Yeah, he's talking about Egypt. That word afflict there is anah. They're going to put them under harsh rule. Where you're going to do what they say, not what you want to say. Isn't that interesting? Let's go to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, verse 11. This is Egypt again. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, to command them what they're going to do. Now, you've, you've been in this situation before, I'm sure, that, you go out on a volunteer job, you're building a house or, or uh, cleaning up something for somebody and do the nastiest, dirtiest work, and at the end of the day, you say, boy, that was cool. And if, and if you had been 17 and your dad came out and made you do that, you would have thought you're being abused, right? So a lot of times, it's not so much necessarily the work that we're doing as much as it is, whether it's what we wanted to do or not, somebody's making us do it. In this case, you're going to do what we say you're going to do. Period. You get in that mud pit and start making bricks or whatever, because your choice is taken away. You're going to you're going to do what I say. Um, look at uh, Exodus 10. Exodus 10 of uh, We've got another use of this word. In verse 3, So Moses and Aaron came into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to anaw yourself before me? To humble yourself before me? So in this case, this is somebody putting themselves under to say, I'll do what you say. So back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8. The Lord came in and said, I want to humble you. I want, I want to put you under my command. Now, uh, Seth, you, you've done this military stuff where they, you, you, you actually voluntarily put yourself in a situation where at least for some period of time in boot camp, you really didn't have any choices, right? and they just basically told you everything that you're going to do. Now, why do they do that at the very first of your training? Take away all your choices. Well, partially to humble you. To humble you. Okay, now what what is the benefit of being humble if you're going to be a soldier? Well, uh, if uh, part of of being able to follow effectively is, is being humble and having respect for the chain of command. Why is following important? You can't accomplish anything if, if, you can't, uh, if you can't move with the same unity of purpose as a, as a group or one body, then you can't, you can't effectively do anything. Okay, so the effectiveness of a military fighting force, totally dependent on whether everyone will humble themselves under the command of the people who say, this is what's best for us, right? Absolutely. Does it always look like that's the best thing for you when... Somebody's shooting at you and you could go backwards and the, the bullets wouldn't be there, but they're asking you to go forwards. It doesn't really look that way all the time, right? But you've got to trust that this is what's best for us. Okay, so similarly, God here is putting them through the boot camp. And look at, the, look at the example He uses in verse 5. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Why do you chasten a son? So they'll learn and grow. So they'll grow up and learn how to, in this culture, learn how to take over the responsibility of the family and keep it going. So God is growing up. And one of the first things he does is take away options. When when they come out of Egypt, one of the things he says is, I'm not going to take them down by the coastal way, which was actually a much easier path. Do you remember why he said that? He says, I'm not going to, this is God speaking, I'm not going to take them by the coastal way where the Philistines are because then they would experience war. And they're not ready for that yet. And if they experience war now, before they're prepared, they'll want to go back. Well, they wanted to go back anyway, right? But what was the problem? They couldn't because they had gone through the Red Sea and they're out in the middle of nowhere eating manna now. They didn't really have the alternative to go back, even though they put together some planning commissions to try to figure out how to do it. Well, they were certainly tempted to try to figure out how to do things their own way, but really what, what it was amounted to is they didn't really have the choice. He humbled you, allowed you to hunger, fed you with manna. Now why did he do all that? Because he's preparing them. What is he preparing them for? To go in and enjoy the land. And in order to enjoy prosperity, you really have to understand what one is. Or else you don't understand it. Partly because you don't have the contrast. And partly because you, you have no perspective. Have you ever been around a child that's never been told no? And that always gets what they want? Maybe even one that's grown up. <laughs> Is that person a happy person usually? Maybe a beautiful woman that's always gotten everything she wants. Do they usually are happy people? Maybe what's that until you say no. <laughs> maybe a really powerful man that's always gotten everything you want? Maybe maybe a star athlete or something. Is that the guy that everybody wants to be around because he's such a happy person? Yeah, you're all laughing because you know that when you've never been told no, you tend to never be satisfied. Everything has to be your way, and if one little thing's out of kilter, you can't handle it. Well, he's preparing them to actually be happy. Happiness comes about by being part of something bigger than yourself that has a common purpose. That's where happiness really comes. And by being a part of a land where you've got this great stuff going and you're digging copper and you're, and you're farming and all that sort of thing, well, that means you're doing your part for the economy. What happens if you stop doing your part for the economy and say, hey, you have something I want. Where's my share? Then what happens? Yeah, you break down into violence. And why did the Lord destroy the earth the first time? Because it was filled with violence. So he's preparing them to have a beneficial, cooperative society where everybody can have a mutual cooperation with one another. And it starts in the wilderness. Uh, One of my friends from college one time, uh, who's a pastor guy, said... He thought one of the biggest problems in Christianity is we're not training our children to expect the wilderness and to embrace it. Pretty good perspective. Well, what's your wilderness? Maybe you're in it now. Maybe you went through it and don't look back on it on something that was really positive. Uh, I don't want, I, I did not enjoy that hike. I'm glad I went on it. I would not choose to go on it as kind of something that I like to do on a daily basis. Some of the greatest things in my life are wilderness experiences. I don't want any more. They may come. If they come, I'm going to choose to embrace them. But who who wants a wilderness experience? What did it say? Let's go back to Matthew. I'm sorry, Luke. Let's go back to Luke. Uh, oh sorry this was the Mark passage what did it say about well it says it here too it says it in uh, uh, yeah verse 1 chapter 4 verse 1 how was it that Jesus got to the wilderness is it because he said to himself you know I think I need a wilderness experience you know I think if I do a wilderness experience people will understand something what? He was led or driven into the wilderness. Because this isn't something we choose on our own. It's God saying, you need this. And Jesus said, okay. And then Satan comes along and says, you have the ability to provide for yourself in your own way. You have the ability to make this go away if you'll just take things into your own control. And Jesus says, Ah, yes, but I I know this lesson already because I've learned it through the children of Israel. That I don't provide on my own way. I, I just follow what God says. If He tells me to do that, I'll do it. As a matter of fact, I'm going to turn some... I'm going to multiply some bread a little later from now. Feed 5,000 people with two lo- or 5 loaves and 2 fishes or whichever way it was. I'm going to do that. But I'm going to do it when the Spirit tells me to do it, not just to provide for myself my own way. Because God's given me this wilderness experience. I'm going to wait on Him. At any point in time, the children of Israel could have ex- done an expedition to surrender to Moab or something. Possibly. They probably would have killed them all. But that's not they had a lot of good options. But taking, thing into their, t- taking things into their own hands is a constant temptation for us. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to endure this trial and I'm going to wait on God's time. I'm not going to take things into my own hands. Well, I think we can all identify with this. Sometimes you just can't see how in the world doing what God's asked you to do could ever have any benefit turn the other cheek to that goon that imbecile that I, there's no way I can turn the other cheek to that person love that enemy surely he didn't mean that enemy forgive that person they don't deserve that well have grace to that person that person if I have grace to that person they'll go wild I have to control that person no. When we have trials, we can say, you know, I'm going to live by the commands of God. I don't necessarily have to see how this is going to work out. And what that's doing is setting us up for prosperity. Maybe in this life. Maybe in the next. Probably both. We know that when we let go of bitterness, we get peace as a result. And that's a now thing. We also know every time we trust God, we're laying up treasure in heaven. Well, that was the first thing. So then the second thing in in verse 5, Then the devil, taking him up on a high mountain, showed him all the kings of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, All this authority I'll give to you and their glory, for this has been delivered to me, and I'll give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you'll worship before me, it'll all be yours. And Jesus answered and said, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Well, back to Deuteronomy. This time, verse uh, chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now chapter 6 of Deuteronomy starts this great Shema. Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments where the Lord your God has commanded to teach you. This is Moses again, giving his last kind of testament. The last instructions before they go in and take the land. The manna stops. They begin possessing their possession that they've been prepared for for 40 years. That you may observe them in the land you're crossing over to possess. Verse 2. That you may fear the Lord your God to keep all His statutes, His commandments, which I command you. Live by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. You and your son and your grandson all the days of your life. And that your days may be prolonged. Giving you this for your own good. Therefore, hear, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, that it may be well with you, you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of your fathers promised you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord's one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, When you lie down, when you rise up, not just Sunday school, all day long, talk to your kids about these principles. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Permeate your entire life with these commandments. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land which He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is just about to happen. We're on the hills of Moab looking at the land here. To give you large and beautiful cities, which you didn't even build. Houses full of good things, which you didn't even fill. Hewn out wells, you didn't dig. Vineyards, olive trees you didn't plant. When you've eaten and are full, then beware lest you forget the Lord. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord God and serve Him only. Take oaths in His name. Shall not go after other gods. So, Satan says, comes up and says... Uh, Just bow down and worship me. I'll give you everything you want. Just follow my way and you'll have everything you want. Now what does the world say to you? Doesn't it say if you'll just follow my way I'll give you everything you want? How many commercials on TV promise you that everything you want if you'll just buy that thing? And then again, and then again, and then again, and then again. And Jesus answered says, no, that's not how you get that. That's not how you get the, the blessings of the world. You get the blessings of the world by serving God. So now we've gone from the, well, how do you handle the wilderness to how do you handle prosperity? You've had wildernesses in your life. Uh, as you think back on them, embrace them as preparation." Now, you've had prosperity in your life too. You, for one thing, you're born in the United States. And you're born into a place with cities you didn't build. I, I was born into a house that I, that I I didn't build. I was given amazing opportunities that I, didn't, that I didn't set up. They were set up by people that came before me. And what am I going to do with those? I, I got two choices. I can forget God or I can continue to live in His Word. That's my, two, that's my two choices. Verse 14, you shall not go after under gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. What's the main God around us? Oh, wealth. Wealth, Materialism, right? That's the main God around us. Materialism and narcissism. I shall do my thing my way. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I did it my way. It may have been a bad way, but at least it was my way. I destroyed myself, but at least I did it. Nobody can tell me what to do. who, Who dies with the most toys wins. Verse 14, you shall not go after under God's... For the Lord your God is jealous among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused and you destroy you from the face of the work. What this jealousy thing bothers some people. But he's talking about himself as a parent in this whole thing, right? Are you jealous about who interacts with your child and how and how they uh, and, and the circumstances that they're allowed to be put into? Or do you just say, Huh, have a good day, four-year-old. Just try not to get run over as you go through the street. Hopefully, if a stranger picks you up, they'll be nice to you. Or do you say, "No, I'm going to limit your circumstances here because I don't want you being with the wrong people," and I don't don't aren't you jealous for your child? Well, that's the kind of thing he's talking about here. Lest the anger of the Lord be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. You know, there's real the wages of sin is death. And the world's way is sinful. It's against God's way. And all of them are self-destructive. God doesn't necessarily have to do anything to us. Sometimes he does. But for the most part, the end of the world's way is self-destruction. That's where most of those paths lead. And it doesn't matter whether you're talking about alcohol abuse, drug abuse, um, <clears throat> embittered relationships, uh, Our bitterness against other people can eat you up. You just, you name it. Uh, Materialism and materialism, you end up with a massive fear and paranoia that people are going to get your stuff. And the most materialistic people that I I think I know are the homeless people. They have their little shopping cart and their junk in their shopping cart and they just guard that stuff. They cannot let it up. It's a nice little picture of what we degrade into when we take possession of things. But if we have this lessons from the wilderness experience that we learn when everything's taken away from us and we learn, I'm okay if I don't have any choices. I'm okay if I don't have any stuff. Then we can go and into prosperity and say, I know if this is all taken away from me, I'll still be okay. And we can actually enjoy the stuff instead of worrying about losing it. We can actually enjoy the stuff that we have instead of seeking more. You know, materialism is a philosophy that says you, should, you can be happy with something you don't have. Which means you can never enjoy what you do have. No matter how much stuff you have, you can't enjoy it. You've got to place your enjoyment on the next thing. Which is crazy. But by having this attitude, we can actually enjoy this stuff. 1 Timothy 6, God's given us all things to enjoy. Uh, There's a rabbi, rabbinical, saying that says we'll have to give an account to God for every enjoyment that we could have had and didn't. And I think a lot of times we're so wrapped up with worrying about what might happen or being unhappy with circumstances we have, we forget to enjoy what's there. So we have the opportunity to get through the wilderness. We have the opportunity to enjoy what's here. Let's look at the last temptation. Luke 4 again. He brought him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it's written, He shall give his angels charge over you to keep you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It's been said, You should not tempt the Lord your God. The devil had ended every temptation; he departed to him as till an opportune time. So let's go back to Deuteronomy six, and we stopped just before this verse. Lest the anger of the Lord be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as 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 you tempted him in Manasseh. I'm sorry, Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies. So, what is this temptation at Massah? Let's go to Exodus 17. Exodus chapter 17. Then the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of Sin according to the commandment of the Lord, camped at Rephidim, but there's no water to drink. Therefore, the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? This is, this is what this passage is about, tempting God. The people thirsted for water and they complained. And they said, why are you brought up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Now what's already happened at this point in time with, with respect to God's provision? What's he already done? Red Sea, ten plagues, pillar by night, cloud by day. Do you think that they have adequate information about God's provision to trust Him, would it have been wrong for them to to petition and say, we're really thirsty, would you please provide for us? Anything wrong with that? That's not what they're doing. And kind of the bottom line of this is in verse 7. They call the name of this place Massah, which means, uh, I think it means temptation. Yeah, tempted. And Meribah, which means contention because of the contention of the children of Israel because they tempted the Lord saying this is the Lord among us or not okay so how you know a few weeks ago he parted the Red Sea but this is today uh, a few weeks ago he uh, you know killed all the Egyptians and, and let us free but this is today we got this cloud up here that's walking us around but the cloud's not giving us any water. Is God among us or not? So we got the temptation of, look, it's too hard. God would never let me go through this harsh thing. I've got to be mad at God. A lot of people go into agnosticism and atheism because God let them down. Somebody died in their life. Some, something that they really wanted didn't happen. Or can you trust God and say, this is my Father providing for me to teach me how to live constructively and with prosperity? Uh, A lot of us get into comfortable situations and just start coasting. And we start saying, I did all this myself. Look at me. Could anything be any better than me? Or I don't want to take risk that I lose any of this because it's too comfortable I remember what that hard life was back and I don't want to go back to that and all of us I think have done have struggled with both of those things and then all of us struggle with but God if you really cared for me then you would perform this thing for me I don't know if you've ever watched Aladdin and Al the, the uh, genie hey what kind of wish do you want I think that's kind of how we want God to be just rub the lamp, and out He comes, and we make our command, and He does it, and why shouldn't He? We're so wonderful. But is the Lord among us or not? And we have we have uh, even uh, significant movements in the church that say, God will do what you command Him to do if you'll just give me a lot of money, or if you'll just serve Him by... This is Job, isn't it? Job's three friends came and they said, if you would have done what God wanted, you you wouldn't have had this problem. It's it's a long-standing way to think God ultimately is in our control. So Jesus gives us this model, how to handle temptation. Some, Some people say, and I think rightly, this follows the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and boastful pride of life. But we have wilderness experiences. We have prosperity, sometimes in close proximity or even at the same time. And we're always tempted to say, you know, God, if you really loved me, you'd do this. And what Jesus said is, I'm going to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I'm going to wait on God's timing because I know that's what's best. And I'm going to trust God to do things His way, not my way. Jesus Christ, who holds the whole world together, and all things consist in Him. He's the only man that's ever lived that could live an independent life. And He said, of Myself, I can do nothing. I only do what the Father tells me to do. And He's showing us in this amazing interaction with Satan, and His obedience to the Spirit to go into the wilderness, He's showing us the pattern. Is there anything easy about this? If it was easy, it wouldn't be a trial. (laughs) It's really difficult to do. But it's training. And it's preparing us for prosperity now and in the age to come. So, let's embrace the wilderness. Let's teach our children to embrace the wilderness, to expect it. Not to seek it, to expect it. Let's embrace prosperity. Let's enjoy when God gives us something good. And let's hold it with an open hand. If it goes away and we go back to the wilderness again, we can still trust God in that. And let's have, expect God to be God, not our genie. If He was our genie, we would screw things up anyway. We don't know what's best. He does. God, thank you for this amazing example Jesus gave us. Help us embrace... Resisting temptation, because we know you have our best interest at heart. In Jesus' name, Amen. Hey, I've gotten where I have a six cents about this thing. All right, forty-three minutes, just. <laughs>